Well, I am joined here by Jason Madison and Jonathan Doyle of Lost and Colt Publication. Is it publications or publication? How do you guys? Publishing. That's fine. Publishing. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what's going on here. So I noticed that you guys are, you're, you're making the lock on journal and you have other things that you want to, you said you wanted to kind of dive into. What, what is the, uh, what is the objective of Lost and Colt? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for many years, we've we've wanted to uh, create products with you know design at the forefront, and also that are very much community based. Um, I speak to a lot of writers and artists that have trouble getting their content, for example, signed on a traditional website that's based on SEO. Um, and we really wanted this to be a to be a love letter to gaming, and we've allowed the writers to come to us with their pitches and stuff that they've said on like a personal level, they've not been able to, you know, get signed elsewhere uh, because it's too niche, too enthusiastic, et cetera. And we, we really believe in people being able to tell their own stories. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's what we've got, gone with, with uh, lock on uh, lost in cult in general. The idea is it'll be an indie publisher uh, of physical media. So it won't just end at books and, journals uh, we'll, we will extend in the future and it's basically going to be as i said focusing primarily on design and bringing the community together so i i i really like the um i like the idea of physical media like i don't know about you guys but i'm one of those people that like i refuse to go silently into this all digital future and so I, I don't know like how stores are out there, but here, like you go to like Target or Best Buy or, you know, wherever, or Walmart or wherever you get your stuff from. And there's like their physical media section, like their movies, their games, their music, it's all being like condensed into one little section because everything's going digital. And that like, it, I don't know, it, it, it's not something that I'm a big fan of because like I love, I collect retro games and I love like collector's editions. And I just, I love having my hands on something, something physical, you know, cause you, you look mm, at something mm. like, like there's a good example. Do you have the Wii? Yeah. Uh, I did when it first came out. Yeah. And um, I noticed, I think that was the first time I was able to get into uh, buying digital games on the storefront. Um, so like, I instantly bought uh, Super Mario 64 when you know as soon as i got the Wii, yeah uh, but then I, I started noticing you know a little bit of a shift especially when the uh, the ps3 came out you know i ended up uh restoring a lot of my old ps1 library through uh, the psn store yeah because i didn't have those games anymore and they, they were relatively cheap but um as time's gone on you know here in 2021 um i've got that kind of urge to be collecting the stuff I had as a child back in the nineties, you know, in a physical form again, because of that nostalgia value. And then that just makes me feel like, you know, physical is so important to me, but uh, John, um, I'm sure you'll want to say uh, something uh, or two about uh, physical media. I'll let you take uh, this on John, if you want to say a few words. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big believer in physical media, but primarily from a preservation standpoint. Uh, and accessibility obviously the downside of digital being you know uh everything gets lost on the web i mean it's a bit like stories it's similar with lock on we're trying to mm. we're trying to make something that is is permanent yeah. you know you can you can always and we don't want it to age either i mean so <laughs> i do a lot of work for um repairability of video game consoles i do a lot of work for uh, preservation so testing software disc code 
etc to ensure that these games in their 1.0 builds on the disc you know they run smoothly so in the future when the digital servers go down and our only access point is what is legally stored on a disc you know how are those builds how do they play uh, i'm involved in communities getting you know getting our heads around how we can preserve content um, same with movies i mean i'm a huge fan of physical movies yeah. i mean because really in order to preserve this content so many movies are now being spread across multiple platforms and it's becoming really difficult to you know to have any kind of movie collection i mean i've probably i think i've got about maybe three and a half four thousand blu-rays now Jeez. just like a building a wall uh, of yeah. like films like it's literally a library i mean my intention was i love i'm going to create you know digital backups etc but it's it's really about i i believe that content should be accessible offline whenever people have access to it and games themselves are, are in my opinion are an art form and i believe that really needs needs to be preserved um, and if the more we shift to digital the more that ability is taken from us digital isn't the isn't the devil that people make it out to be in the respect that it works offline the real uh, the real issue is digital rights management and cloud and like you know uh, always online tech that's what will damn video game preservation we've seen so many video games now that have um, have come out and their their single player campaigns have been linked to servers so when yeah. they pull the server the game goes with it i mean and that game is now all the work that went into it all the stories everything is now gone forever i mean can you imagine all those retro games you just mentioned imagine if you could no longer play any of those because they were linked to servers yeah i mean that 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 idea is you know deeply terrifying to me and that's why i've i've worked with so many different people to try and ensure this content is accessible globally. I mean, you said that you can see the sections are being reduced in stores, yeah. and the reason for the, the reason for that is um, a lot of consumers have now switched their buying behavior to online. In the UK, for example, seventy-one percent of physical games uh, sold in twenty twenty were online. Now, you could say that that was driven by uh, you know recent events, but um, I believe personally, just consumer habits are trending to be more enthusiastic and be more online. People, um, physical movies have, have been in a bad way for quite some time. I mean, they've been in decline. And obviously, with recent events, there's been no new releases. So stores, like you said, like Target, are obviously reducing their bays to accommodate uh, product lines that have you know more income in stock and better sales. But if you look at the, uh, the actual physical games market, there's this perception it's dying, but it's actually worth $15 billion, which is 15 times the size of uh, vinyl. That's three times the size of the global physical music market. In 2020, physical game sales grew year on year. They're currently stronger than they were during the PS3 generation. But because digital has increased the market so much, the, the percentage share is always looking smaller. I always use the analogy, I have three apples, you have two. Tomorrow, I have four apples, but you have six. That doesn't mean I have any less apples but you've just got so much more than me now. So physical games, I, I don't perceive them as dying. I don't believe physical media is dying. All I believe is it's becoming more about collectors, enthusiasts. And as a result of that, uh, you kind of take a quality first approach. I mean, if the music industry uh, or the book industry hadn't had its you know, battle with digital, we wouldn't see stuff like self-publishing anymore. I mean, uh, it used to be a case that if you wanted to publish a, a journal like we are, you would have to go through publishers. They would have demands. They would want to print 10,000 copies, and it was inaccessible. Kindles nearly eradicated the, the publishing market. And because books then came back stronger for enthusiasts, now people are able to self-publish like we are. 
I mean, if it wasn't for that digitization, enthusiasts' books wouldn't exist. So I feel like there's a balance. I feel like you have to have both to, to you know, make the industry as accessible as possible. But I feel like any kind of industry that wants to force one model, I don't believe that's good for consumers or good for accessibility of content. Yeah. Okay. So would you say that like, it's almost a matter of like what you're exposed to? Like if you're, if you don't go to the store often and you're just like on Xbox live or PlayStation network or whatever, Mm. you're like, you're getting bombarded with all these uh, digital services as opposed to like actually seeing physical media in store. I I feel like, I feel like it really depends on the game. I mean, if you look at uh, single player games, they're predominantly uh, physical media. I mean, uh, in the UK last year, titles like The Last of Us were only 30% digital. And that reflect that's pretty reflective worldwide, to be honest. The, the trend globally is if it's a single-player game, it sells as well physical. However, we see less uh, single-player games. And obviously now we see more service games, more live service, more. And that obviously, uh, they lean heavily towards digital. And especially, for example, like Call of Duty now, FIFA, they have big incentives for you just not to buy a disc, for you to go digital because you get, you know, gold packs you'll get extra guns etc and it's a, a real incentive and um, what that what that obviously uh, what we start to see now is it was similar with movies many years ago i was uh, i was a buyer for blockbuster uh, in the uk yeah. and i was uh, i was in the games division so i used to deal with the analytical side of this and what we used to see was for every uh, every 10 customers to 20 customers that would rent a film one would buy and so that what that shows you is most consumers are only interested in convenience so um, as we see digitization of games, there's a large portion of that customer base that doesn't care about ownership. They don't care about accessibility. All they care about is accessing that content then and there, and they have no interest in, in accessing it again. DVDs did well for so long because they were the only reasonable, cheap way to watch a movie, a new release. Now with streaming, you're seeing most consumers jump onto that. However, there is still a collector's base for books, vinyls, games, and they're they're what you call your enthusiasts. And I believe that's the market. What game companies are really looking at, they want 90% of their customers buying digital games, and they want an enthusiast base buying expensive collector's editions and physical media. That's kind of the sweet spot. You don't, that that way you're making the most margin from digital sales, but you've also got that, you know, multiple billion dollar market where you can uh, sell your collector's editions and your steel books and your, uh, and that way you keep the whole audience happy. There's music CDs have dropped several percent for the last 30 years to the point now where they went from tens of billions to now they're worth less than, I think it's 800 million. And with that, most companies, for example, Sony, they've supported them the entire time. They could have at any stage said, oh no, we're going to drop CD and just go all digital, but they didn't. And I feel that's important to people get carried away with, you know, evil company, blah, blah, blah. When actually they most of these companies wouldn't want to shut out a revenue opportunity unless yeah. it was pointless, if that makes sense. Uh, the only time I would see that would be an example like Stadia, something disruptive to the market that comes in that tries to shift the market, obviously fails in this instance, but there could be examples in the future where a, a different market. But markets, again, it's all cyclical. Stuff comes around, you know, uh, we're all going digital now and then in 10 years, we'll be like, oh, I want to own movies again or it kind of goes in circles like with music. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of how I got back into retro gaming. Like I traded in, you know, as a young, dumb kid, I traded in all my stuff that's worth tons of money now because I wanted to buy a copy of Halo 2. And now, mm, like, I, absolutely. I, yeah, I share that some. Yeah. You know, uh, 
I share that sentiment. I, mean, I remember getting rid of my complete PAL uh, Dreamcast collection to get the Xbox and GameCube <laughs> when that when they came out. And nowadays, Dreamcast games and the consoles are worth a lot of money. Oh, yeah. So I'm now rebuying that stuff at a later point in, the, in life, and it's more expensive. Yeah, it's it's you know? it's insane. Yeah, I mean, did you? So I I bought a, a copy of Brave Fencer Musashi on PlayStation <laughs> One, and I remember yes. I I bought the game for twenty dollars, and then I ended up paying seventy five dollars on eBay just to get it back. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah, there's a real appreciation of value as well. Um, I feel like that's uh, there's two sides to that, isn't there? Obviously, there's the collector's market, which kind of grows and grows and grows. And also, uh, because of digital, there's really no way of accessing that content now, uh, legally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, right. there are emulators, et cetera. But legally speaking, the only way you can access a, a game like the one you've just said or some obscure Japanese PlayStation 1 games like Harmful Park, mm-hmm. you either spend £700 on the disc or you, you know, you find a, a different means. And I mean, you can access it at the moment on the PlayStation free store. If, but yeah. you have to set up a Japanese account, you have to buy Japanese PSN vouchers from Japan because they won't accept a credit card. You then have to download the file and then eventually that server will go down and that will be inaccessible to you. So, I mean, that's kind of the downside of, you know, of, you know legal it's, digital means it's interesting you say that because um here in europe in the uk we didn't get uh squaresoft games back in the day like you know brave fencer uh, uh Gears, tactics uh chrono cross uh parasar eve one so when i got the ps3 um i made a us psn account with a you know using a random address and buying some uh psn gift vouchers from playasia.com and then using all of that to get those games you know, because I used to do a lot of importing uh, when I was a child. So accessibility, um, you know, it's it's something we strive for, isn't it, John? You know, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I so like now I can go on to um, you know you can make an if you have like a VPN, like you can make if you're like on Xbox, right? You can make a a profile and like mm. attach it to some account in Brazil. Right. And you can like get access to stuff like that. So, I mean, it's a lot easier now to like find things from other countries, uh, as opposed yeah. to when it was like back when, Oh, know, definitely we younger. Um, I mean, with Nintendo switch games, if you create a uh, South African account, you'll find that the games are far cheaper than most other places in the world. Or, um, you know, if you open up a Japanese eShop account, you know, you've got more accessibility to um, a wider range of niche games yeah. at varying different costs. And uh, and you might just find some of them may have, like, you know, your preferred language on them. So, um, yeah, there's different ways of getting around things nowadays, uh, you know, just to get what we want to play. Yeah. But I guess it's uh, we need to all strive for just making that as easy as possible, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, accessibility is mm-hmm. king, isn't it, really? Yeah. But obviously, yeah. There's, there's risks. I mean, you download a digital file, you are literally linked to. So the, every server has, you know, digital rights management. So, you, you know, you can sign up to as many different Switch eShop accounts as you want. And one day that content might be switched. Like the Wii eShop's gone now. Yeah. And there are so many games that are gone forever now. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that could happen with the switch. And that, I mean, in that respect, that is why physical media and more importantly, why a console that uh, can be set up and function offline uh, is important for preservation. I mean, uh, you just mentioned the Xbox and how you can set up different accounts. I mean, in 10, in 20 years time, uh, 
that'll probably be pointless anyway because the Xbox uh, series and the Xbox One require the internet to activate it, to even be set up. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to the stage where you won't be able to even repair those systems. To even use them, they will become e-waste. Uh, and that, you know, whereas luckily with the Nintendo and the PlayStation, they can be set up offline. So there are way, methods around it. But you can buy all the Xbox discs you want in the world. But in 20 years' time, uh, it's going to be really difficult to have a retro xbox one oh, because sure. it's simply yeah. it'll be just whatever works works whatever fails that's it unfortunately yeah yeah i mean and you had made, made a good point like that's why i was talking about the wii originally was the fact that like i had purchased so many digital games on the wii shop and uh like mario 64 a bunch of old zelda titles and then that's just gone you know and they like they gone shut that forever. down and same thing i'm hearing that there's a lot of fear with like google stadia users the people who like bought into stadia and now that stadia is being shut down and then i know they're like they have another hundred something games supposed to come out and they're supposed to support it for the next few years but like what happens when they don't you know so all that money you spent in the stadia marketplace is just gone like there's no you don't get to keep the games there's nothing physical to keep there it's all streaming it's like a corporate dream this this kind of dream that people it's a bit like what's happening with the art scene you know with like crypto art etc it's kind of this this ideal scene that you can sell people a product that isn't there that they have no rights over Mm -hmm. have no control over they'll pay just as much money and then any day you can take it away and they have no rights to stop you it's kind of like that corporate dream isn't it to have that perfect product that people will never own you know you have mass control over which i think you know i don't i can't imagine there's any villains cackling you know coming up with these plans but (laughs) it's a scary concept yeah i mean i'm yeah and i'm i'm sure it's not like people like you said people not purposely coming up with it it's just an infrastructure that wasn't meant to support things once a system shuts down uh well what so on that note though what do you guys think about the the rumor or not rumors but word coming out of microsoft that the, this next halo game halo infinite supposed to be just this uh this is it for halo games like this is the last fi- piece of physical media you'll be able to own for halo because every single new halo idea or concept that comes out is going to be linked to this halo infinite platform so with microsoft john will be able to elaborate further on this after i've said my piece so with Microsoft, their trajectory at the moment is is Game Pass, and all things will lead to Game Pass. Um, I have a suspicion that the Xbox Series consoles may be their last, and that what they're tra- what they're doing at the moment is shifting everything to a services platform and operation. So it may be the next generation, uh, the new Xbox as Xbox will be a dongle and uh, a controller. You know, a, a bit similar to Stadia you know, streaming in in cloud networks. Uh, So with that being said, I think the model that they're going to use for their first-party AAA games, like Halo Infinite, will be that it's going to be an organic, growing, you know, games-as-a-service game, a bit similar to Destiny in a way, except it's single-player with some multiplayer activities. So you're going to get a version of Halo Infinite, but then it's going to keep growing with further examples of dlc over time and then it won't you know it's not just going to be like a a one and done single player experience like what you'd normally get with a sony game or in many cases nintendo so i think that's where they're going and with bethesda um i feel you know that's kind of where they're going to go as well possibly with like you know fallout and uh, the elder scrolls game so it is interesting but it's a developing situation and uh, we don't know fully what's going to go on yeah. So it's anyone's guess, really. So do you think I mean, that they could try this stuff and then have it not work and then kind of just go back to 
a different. I think that's the that's the inevitability. Really, you have um, with the market. Yeah, Xbox have been forced into this position. It, people forget that like the Xbox One generation was really really bad for business, mm-hmm. and their software sales absolutely tanked. They 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 were unable to sign a single player game that sold you know reasonably well, and they've kind of had to shift their entire business model forcefully. I mean, I can't imagine any company in the world wouldn't want you know, upfront AAA sales in the millions and then people to subscribe to their subscription services. I feel like Microsoft's hand was forced more so. And I also feel like their 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 want to get into the cloud space is obviously being led primarily by Microsoft itself more so than Xbox. I mean yeah. Microsoft wants to shift to a cloud model. Um, however, I believe cloud itself is purely additive. I don't see it as a consumptive means of content. Which they obviously do, but I, 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 the data shows it's not, and the data shows any consumptive behavior right now has failed miserably. So I feel like even if they wanted the next console to be a dongle, I don't think feasibly they'll have the audience reach to make it so. Um, and there's so many other factors. Half the world has poor infrastructure, little to no internet accessibility, and the other half that does have internet has data caps. Uh, that there's so many reasons why you would, you really need to play this as it comes along. I mean, yeah. there's a, there is a small chance that they could come out, everyone will buy it, all of their console customers will be like, oh, we don't need this anymore. And that's kind of where the, this price desensitization comes in. So like PlayStation, Nintendo, they base their businesses about slow saturation of IP. You release a game, you get high upfront sales, then slowly over time you reduce its you know proposition value. And then at the very end, of the, you put it on a service or you discount it heavily. Uh, Nintendo again, they just don't do the discounting. They kind of vault their content. Xbox, what they're doing is they're trying to uh, saturate the content immediately so that it will keep you subscribed to the subscription. And that is similar to Netflix and how Netflix, 99% of the time, it's just TV shows, Mm -hmm. TV shows, TV shows, TV shows, because that keeps you engaged. And every now and again, Netflix will release a big film. So I, I see a situation where you get one big game on Games Pass every half a year. And then the rest of the games you're getting thrown, you know, several smaller titles or live service titles like Halo, which keep people engaged over a period of time. And that reduces what you call churn. Churn is when people only subscribe to a service to see one show, play one game, and then they leave. So what they're doing is they're just trying to get three or four months out of you instead of one month out of you. And that's unfortunately the downside of that is all of your content then gets shipped. So you, instead of making single player games like Nintendo or Sony, you shift to live service engagement based content. And right now, I mean, that's what their customers want. They've built this audience. Most of the customers that didn't want this left at the start of the Xbox One. The customers they've built since want this. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that. We've seen they want it. And the new audience they're getting. My only concern with the model is more so single player games and indie games become impossible to maintain once you get paid on engagement. And what I mean by that is a title like God of War or say Goose Game, even an indie darling and a critical darling. Both of those games can be completed in less than 20 hours. They have very little replayability. And if you were like doing what Apple does with Apple Arcade and paying on engagement, they would be worthless. Whereas a game like Fortnite or a live service title would be, that's where all the money is. Mm -hmm. Then it also becomes about other means, somewhat predatory means uh, of adding microtransactions, et cetera. And this is what we saw with the mobile market. It then becomes about, well, we'll give the game away for free, but then we'll milk the user for every penny we can 
for everything else. And that can become quite predatory. And that's the worry, really. And that's why you saw so many devs leave Apple Arcade and go straight to Switch as soon as they changed their business model. Yeah. And that's the worry. At the minute, they're doing it because they have to. And in the future, they will change their model. And they won't be giving devs money up front because they won't need to anymore. I mean, competition is good because it keeps people in their place somewhat. It stops... You know, it stops this kind of monopoly happening. So, I mean, we want Xbox to do well because that will that will keep Sony in its place. That will keep Nintendo in their place, you know, and that they will kind of work a deal a little bit with the right to repair. And you see tech companies, specifically American ones, so like Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, they lobby like the CTS, et cetera, to block the right to repair at every opportunity. Whereas in Europe, uh, they, they tend to lose against this. But if it wasn't for the you know other companies being in that space, they would be impossible to stop. I mean, like look at iPhones. Yeah, an iPhone is only repairable slightly because Apple deliberately makes them unrepairable. And what you're looking at in America, you you have lobbies that will stop you being able to repair your phones legally because Apple will lobby them. Whereas in Europe, they're losing that lobby, and th- this is why we need we need other manufacturers in the space that are allowing their phones to be repairable. Um, so yeah, I feel like I feel like that's that's the situation really. And Xbox, you know, they're following this model because they kind of have to yeah. more than anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that makes sense. The um, because because you see a lot of uh, you know, you had mentioned God of War. Like, there's a lot of talk about like the big single player experiences dying to these um, smaller microtransaction driven, uh, games as an experience type things. Do you th- think that there's any truth to that? do you think that we no, are? No, no. I mean, I, when Sony started doing the PlayStation five, they did a lot of dev documents. And one of the, one of the documents was like single player games are dying. Lol. And then it went in to tell you how that's complete fabrication. I mean, look at Nintendo and PlayStation. They're both nearly at the strongest positions they've ever been. Yeah. And they're leading with single player games. Uh, now look at the competition, who is leading with multiplayer and service games and it's you know not so great now if you look at third-party publishers now what it's basically showing you is a company like nintendo and playstation and for example capcom square enix they can lead with these single-player games but there's also a big market now for service games all that's happening is people get so caught up with this concept of you can only have one or the other it's a bit like physical and digital you can Mm -hmm. markets are not zero sum they are the sum of many parts and yeah, and that's what we're seeing really again. Like people are like, oh well, single player games are dying. I mean, if you look at Ghost of Tsushima's numbers or like Final Fantasy VII remakes numbers, they're not dying. Cyberpunk just did like twenty odd million copies. Right. They're not dying like by any means. If anything, this is probably a rejuvenation of the single player. I mean, there was a there was a time at the end of the PS3 where things started to look a bit concerning, and then the PlayStation Four did really well. The Nintendo Switch has done really well. And they've kind of shown that 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 was really nonsense, Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of perception that they're dying. I feel like indie gaming is also really growing the single-player market. There's a a lot less single-player games now. That's because budgets have risen. However, the ones we are getting, they're very quality-focused. So I feel there's there's always going to be room in the industry for single-player games. Now, from a preservation standpoint, we just need to keep pushing for those games to be available offline. I mean, uh, recently, uh, PlayStation released Horizon on PC, as I'm sure you'll be aware. And they released it on GOG with no DRM, which is fantastic. So that's what I want to see. If, I mean, if you are going into this future, we need to make sure content is accessible. Yeah. You know, uh, Cyberpunk, again, you can get it DRM free. But then you see other companies like uh, uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 has been released on Steam. Or actually, no, Epic Game Store. 
and it has a uh, an online activation DRM, which means it's going to be a nightmare to preserve. So, I mean, that kind of stuff boils my blood. That like you you make these fantastic stories. Well, okay, so I mean, we'll we'll get back to uh, um, Lost and Colt here in a second, but like, what is wh- what do you think the purpose of that is? So, what do you think the purpose of having a game where you have to be all online is? Because like I've seen that too. Like I. Um, you know, I'm out in Texas and we just had the, I don't know if you guys saw on the news, like the ice apocalypse, like hit us. Yeah. I we saw, had, yeah. yeah. We, so we had, I, we were fortunate enough to still have electricity. So I was like playing games while every, you know, everyone else around me was all out of power and their waters turned off and all that. So I was on games pass. So trying to play stuff and then, or even just playing something on a disc, like Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And as soon as the internet's gone, I can't, I can't even turn it on anymore. Yeah, it really it it varies per system. I mean, from our tests we do on the PlayStation, provided uh, when you put a disc in a PlayStation system or you put a cartridge in a Nintendo Switch, it is not regulated in any way by the internet. And PlayStation, Nintendo actually uh, they 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 don't want uh, external DRM in their games. If that makes sense, yeah. so uh, they will uh, they they have their own basically, and that's why you see, for example, Call of Duty on. PlayStation and Xbox uh, can be played offline, whereas on PC it has to be connected constantly. Mm-hmm. The companies will say it's for piracy means, but piracy is such a non-issue now versus what it used to be. Yeah. I mean, piracy is the reason we have stupid laws. Like you have, uh, you have a law in America that you can't replace disk drives because of like tamper chips and stuff. But that, that's not been a thing for like ten years, and and now you can't repair your own disk drives because of this ridiculous law that some someone set twenty years ago. And I feel like that's kind of what PC manufacturers uh, are kind of up against. There's all this digital rights management and th- they believe it's to control the flow of piracy. But I feel like all it really does is hurts the consumer themselves. I mean, what, be- what, what benefit did you get when your internet went down and you couldn't pay your single play game that you paid money for? I mean, absolutely none. Nothing. And it's a bit like uh, a week ago, Xbox Live went down. And if you didn't have your console set as your home system, you couldn't set an Xbox up. You couldn't play new games. You couldn't play anything on your Games Pass. It became useless. And yeah. this is why this on people kind of I hear the argument a lot. Well, just get better internet, but that's not the point. At any at any time, the internet can become inaccessible. There are whole countries with like terrible infrastructure and etc. And linking offline content to the internet just seems bizarre. And it's, it's and it's it's damning to preservation. I mean, Diablo three. If it wasn't for the console versions, that game will one day be unplayable. It'll be gone forever mm-hmm. because it it pulls assets from the servers. I mean, I, I don't think most people know this. If that makes sense, they don't know this stuff exists, or they don't really care. And it's only when you present them with it that they're like, "Oh yeah." You know, if you tell them what's your favorite game, oh by the way, there's a possibility in the future we'll be in a system that will never let you play that game again. And suddenly people start to care a bit more. You have to explain it very simply to people because you know the the argument, "Oh, just get better internet." And then we explain, well, well, actually, it doesn't matter if you get better internet. I've got fantastic internet, you know, and then they're like, oh, actually, yeah, I'll never be able to play that that game again. You know, what's your favorite game? Halo 2. Well, imagine you could never play Halo 2 again. That's the possibility you could be facing. And that tends to make people come around a bit more, I feel. Yeah, well, I mean, because, like, I I got two kids and, like, I want to be able to, like, show them all the stuff that, like, I grew up with. And, you know, my my biggest biggest fear is that, I mean, that's why I'm, like, going around trying to collect all these retro games. But, like, my biggest fear is, like, I won't be able to show them some of, like, the modern gen stuff when they grow older and they're more into video games. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's a challenge, but we're, we're, we're trying our hardest. I mean, 
uh, every time a game comes out with this ridiculous DRM, we try and push back against it, etc. Trouble is, you're against giants like Activision. Uh, I mean, like Crash Bandicoot 4 is coming on console, it's DRM free. On PC, it's coming to Battle.net. I mean, again, online activation. And then it comes down to preservationists, et cetera, who have to find ways to bypass these you know, digital locks mm-hmm. for content they paid for, which is the worst part. I mean, putting a time limit on a purchase, just it was, uh, it was Amazon who recently said any digital movie you buy from us, you don't ever own. And we have the right to just take it from you at any one time. I mean, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Because <laughs> especially if you like, if you drop... There, and, you know, there are movies, like, for example, this is, a, this is kind of a an out there one, but Three Ninjas, right? A movie way back when oh, I was Oh, that's one of my favorite kids. Right? That, oh, my God. That never came out on DVD no. in the UK. I imported that one from America. Yeah. And even in America, oh. like, I'm at the point where I'm like, I'm going to show my kids this movie. And I can't do it because... They just the DVD copies just don't exist anymore. You can go on eBay and buy like the trilogy for like three hundred dollars, but yeah. why am I going to pay that much for a movie that is it's a classic, but it's just not it's not that great, you know? So like, why am I going to pay three hundred dollars for it? And so uh, I go on Amazon and like I can pay twenty nineteen ninety nine to buy it, but then there's no guarantee that that's ever just going to like vanish. Well, these big tech companies they shut off their services so often. I, I don't get used to any tech company's products because they always turn them off. They're like, oh, well, we promise you're going to keep these ebooks forever. And then they're like, oh, by the way, we're shutting down and you're going to lose all your ebooks. Sorry about that. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah. brilliant. Well, I just spent 400 pounds on comics, you know, and you're taking them away from me. And right. I feel like I don't, I don't want to invest in anything on uh, digital platforms unless it's a rental. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's probably why Xbox are leaning towards Games Pass because it is basically a rental service. Yeah, uh, and they they're still offer provided they still offer games for sale that work offline. We shouldn't really care. Like the bigger issue is that they you know have online DRM setups for their systems. I mean, that's the real because it doesn't matter if you've paid for it; it works offline if the if the system can't be used. Does that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So imagine you imagine you get three ninjas. You're you're super excited. You finally get it. And then you go to put it in and say, you go to put it in your player and then uh, your player doesn't work anymore. So you've got the movie, but you can't watch you it can't anyway. Watch it. The players yeah. Thanks for checking out the PCC, you know, the pop culture cosmos. We'll be back in one moment. Check out what's been going on with the pop culture cosmos show and the PCC multiverse. That is by far my favorite because it's also character driven and the stakes are high and there's much more of a mystery and intrigue to it. A game like Wolfenstein, which people are saying are one of the most socially important video games of the past 10 years. Catch our shows on radio worldwide seven days a week or at any time on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts or on over 30 more podcast outlets. Well, so that's a, a big thing with us. I don't know if you guys have played Assassin's Creed Valhalla, but like I... When I play a, an Elder Scrolls game, like I am saving after everything I do in that game because, like, you just you there's no autosave in there unless you're like going into a town or city or something. With Assassin's Creed Valhalla, you there if you are not connect. So I I played for about like six hours one day. Like I've never do that ever. So I'm like I felt pretty accomplished, you know. And uh, their autosave system only works if you're on if your internet's working. And then I always have to do it manually. Yeah, and so like I, I didn't know this though, and so like I went to go, you know, I just assumed that it saved, and so I shut it off, and I lost six hours of gameplay. So, oh. 
no. Why does that exist? Why is that? It's I, arbitrary. There, yeah. there is no excuse you can tell me why you need a save system that needs a DRM. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense to me right. whatsoever. I mean, it's not like it's some dynamically server-powered AI. It's just an autosave feature that's been around since the PlayStation 2, I imagine, you know. Yeah. It just seems ridiculous to me that you would implement stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. Because um, how does it benefit the consumer at all? Well, how does that benefit your playability? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It just makes me not want to play anymore. Like I honestly, I've, I haven't. I I turned the game back on since then, but I haven't like gone and redone redid the things that I've already mm-hmm. done. Like I just, I'm kind of just walking around in the game, finding treasure and stuff. But like, I'm just unmotivated to play it now. I think a lot of things are just getting lost. Uh, I think I read this week that with Destiny 2, um, I don't know if you guys have played a lot of Destiny before, but um, they're now going to start getting rid of some of the earlier parts of Destiny 2 and then just keep the story going for the more uh, recent expansion. So parts of the game that you may have cherished or played a number of years ago because it's a live service game, they'll just get lost to the ether for you to never be able to access again. And then um, I've also found it odd recently uh, with the upcoming uh, physical release of Final Fantasy VII um, Remake Integrate for PS5, the DLC is not going to be on the actual disc. Oh, It's just going to be a digital-only section. So I think that's why John's work is uh, quite important. Uh, You know, we tried to raise the issue with Square Enix um, over the internet and made more people aware of it. Because uh, a lot of people won't know about these things unless you do your research and you know you connect it to the right people on the internet. But it's just a shame, really, for preservation. You know, you're, you're investing in something which you want to be a complete product, but in some uh, instances, the disc isn't going to have the complete product on it, so that 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 part of the game might get lost to the in, you know to the, the the internet in years to come if the servers went down. Yeah. Uh, that's right. What I've said, isn't it, John? Oh, I'm on yep. the right track, I think. <laughs> well, yep. that's like you, you buy things on the Nintendo Switch uh, physically, and you get those little the little cartridges. But then they say you buy something like the Borderlands Collection or the uh, Bioshock Collection. They only come with one game on it, and you have to download the other like two or three pieces to it. Yeah, I, I mean that, that, that's sorry. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll let John continue in a sense. So, for example, um, Final Fantasy X and X2 HD Remaster, in the Western world, um, you'll find that FF10 is on the car- is on a cartridge, a small capacity cartridge, but X2 is a digital download, whereas in um, Asia and Japan, and with Asia, some territories in Asia not having an eShop, to have access to, you you get to both games on the one uh, higher capacity cartridge. You'll also find with some Japanese Switch releases, you'll um, if it's like a multi-game release, all the games will be on the one cartridge. Whereas in the West, like you've mentioned, you'll just have the one game on the cartridge, then the other games is like an additional uh, digital download. So you are getting a lot of instances where a, a physical release may seem like the complete package to you at face value, but in reality it isn't. You know, for example, with some Switch games, if you've got a 2017 uh, cartridge version of, you know, Zelda Breath of the Wild, that's not actually the comp- the most recent complete version of the game. A 2020 
uh, release of the cartridge may have all the previous patches on it. So uh, with things like this, you know, it's about who you know and what research you do. Right. But uh, John, you can further elaborate on that, can't you? Um, yeah, we we test we test switch carts, and as the production runs go along, they actually update the patches on the cartridges. It'd be nice if uh, companies did this with discs. So, like, if you buy Breath of the Wild today, it'll be completely patched up to date. Uh, it won't have the DLC on it, but it'll have all the latest patches which fix glitches. So, uh, and I mean, Nintendo are good at doing that. And um, you were just saying about Asia. I mean, the East has a lot higher uh, ownership then like the west the west is more like consumable throw away like you you you'll um not a lot will slide in the east in terms of this they have really high ownership tolerance and you see that with uh, the east is one of the few places where cd uh digital downloads only just overtook cd Jeez. i mean cd like in super audio cd nobody really buys them in the west but in in japan especially it's extremely popular and physical media in japan is the dominant sale i mean any game that sells you're looking at 70 80 percent of it is physical media guaranteed no matter what the title is it's usually so asia has really high ownership they also obviously uh so that that means they have high enthusiasts as well but anyone that buys stuff in japan books sell really well in japan movies uh, are expensive because of licensing but they do have real strong enthusiasts but especially games and books i mean there's real high attachment and music like there's record stores everywhere in japan cds super audio cds most of these companies like sony um pioneer panasonic technics they're only making this stuff for the japanese market and yeah. bringing it over to the west is like a oh you can have this as well kind <laughs> of thing i mean nobody in the west really you know asia's huge for it uh, and finally the um the only thing you need to bear in mind is uh, two things first of all nintendo uh they don't really care about publishing outside of first party and uh, second party. And when I say second party, I mean uh, games that they have marketed. So The Witcher 3, Monster Hunter Rise, Skyrim, they're complete on cart because Nintendo has been involved in some way of the publishing aspect of it. Uh, other games like Borderlands, they don't really care. Uh, they kind of just let publishers do whatever they want. And that's why we have this problem with incomplete builds. You will never see a Nintendo marketed game not complete. You will never see a Nintendo first party game not complete mm -hmm. because if you look at the actual Switch sales, I mean, let's go by their latest financials. Their latest financials show 80% of Switch games that sell are physical. Yeah. Digital sales only represent 20%. Okay. That is tiny. And of that, the vast majority are first party games. And that is why Nintendo doesn't really care what how Borderlands ships. Yeah. All they care about is how Mario ships. And like you have great companies like Limited Run Games and uh, you know I am Eight Bit, and they're shipping these products complete, etc. And they're bringing these indie games to the forefront. But what you have to bear in mind is uh, Nintendo of Europe, for example. I know that recently they've started an initiative where they're telling companies that weren't going to release a physical product that were going to do digital only. They're actually saying to them, instead of going digital only, why don't you also release a, a code in a box? Because you will have better exposure than you would on the eShop because all of our game sales are physical. So your best bet is to have an empty plastic case on a shelf rather than put it just on the store. I mean, that's concerning in its own right because of you know, obviously the amount of environmental waste being produced. Yeah. And secondly, Switch cartridges are really expensive. So the smallest Switch carts cost several times more than a PS4 disc or a P and even like a couple of times more than a PS5 game. And I mean, that's eight gigabyte versus... 200 gigabyte so the costing as well is uh, considerably higher with cartridges 
versus disc-based media. Uh, so that is obviously another reason why they would rather just put one game on the cheapest cart possible rather than give you a 16, 32 gigabyte cart, which would cost them a lot more because of the margins. What they should do is they should say, right, we're going to do a couple of versions. We're going to do digital only. We're going to do a, a, a cardboard code and we're going to do a complete edition. The complete edition will be all on cartridge. It's going to cost 20 quid more than the digital and it's only, we're only going to make a couple of thousand copies for collectors. That's what they should do instead of this kind of half-assed, you know, we'll, uh, oh, well, let's just scrap all of that. Let's just do one, you know, uh, that's just a code in a box or half a game on a cartridge. They should really give us more options. I mean, because half the people out there want all the collectors, they want a complete game on cartridge. So, I mean, they shouldn't cut corners. They should just give you all digital or, you know, like a complete product, really. Yeah, I mean, and you see a lot of like the J- JRPGs that come out on Switch are are like that. You can buy like the limited run physical edition of it, or you can just pay the the digital version of it on the yeah. Switch Marketplace. I feel that's healthier for the industry. I mean, having giving people the options, uh, and you're starting to see it with PS5 titles that they'll release the digital game a couple of months before the physical. And that's fine. I mean, the, the the people that want physical are just going to, they will buy it anyway. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, I would rather wait for a patched version than I would buy it day one and it not run, you know, or yeah. be such a poor build that it's in play, you know, unplayable. Especially, I mean, you you retro game, right? So you know the yeah. feeling, you just want it to play, right? Right. And we don't want a situation where in the future, the only possible copy you have of, say, Days Gone runs at four frames a second. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, would you say that with uh, with Lost and Cult, like that, one of the ideas of it is to help with like help pr- preservation of video games, absolutely, and things like that. That was the main focus initially. I mean, uh, the, the company incepted. Uh, I was thinking about doing this way back many years ago, and it was going to be an outlet for the UK to you know to have access to physical media products from around the world. Uh, and then, obviously, I got involved in magazines. So I felt like, oh, well, we've got a voice here. We can actually, you know, I got involved more with preservation. I thought, let's bring people in, like-minded people that have stories to tell. We can preserve the content. We can also, you know, release a nice, I'm a designer. So like, I really want to do a real design focused, you know, something that's beautiful, something that's like a combination between a book and an art book. And it has all these great stories inside. It won't be like a magazine with like top tens and all this kind of stuff. It'll be timeless, you know, personal preferences of why people love games. And Lost in Cult itself, like, because of uh, we had uh, Brexit, sure you've heard of it. Um, <laughs> because of Brexit, the uh, a lot of uh, a lot of American companies and European companies have been completely locked out of England now because of the new VAT system. And we're hopefully we're in conversations with a few partners now to bring their stock to the UK to allow uh, physical customers here to be able to get those products again that have just now been completely cut off to them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be hopefully an outlet for people that you know want to access this content. It's just a case of growing, really. So do you, are you guys going to have like a website where people can yeah. access the like content for free yeah. or is it all going to be locked behind like a subscription wall? So uh, it really depends. Obviously we're going to retail content itself. So uh, if it's from a different party, so say, I don't know, say that there's a book that's only available in America, we're going to try and get that to be in stock here for you. So, you know, that at the moment, a few companies, I know they've stopped shipping to the UK entirely. Uh, so we obviously we want to get that stuff in. We, we'll deal with the VAT, et cetera, for the customer, so that then the, the the consumer in England can get it. Uh, we're also go. We also do our preservation work, so that's done. Diff- that's done independently. But um, in terms of uh, lock on itself, uh, we offer different uh, 
methods of content. So you've got digital files, the people that don't want to deal with shipping, that consume, you know, they don't want to deal with actually having a physical product. And then we go all the way up to our hardback edition, uh, which, you know, has, you know, real nice custom artwork. And the plan for that in the future really is to grow into more of a service model where if you buy a, a product from us, you get you get several months worth of content as well as that product. Does okay. that make sense? So yeah. you buy a book from us uh, on Kickstarter and what you'll get is you'll get, uh, I mean, we're hoping to get like some audio content, some video content, some digital images, and you'll be given that over the course of those months until you get the actual product in your door. And then if you choose to come back again, you'll get more content. So it basically keeps you entertained for a period of time. You're not just buying a one book and that's it. We kind of want it to be an experience. Okay, so that was actually going to be my next question here. Are you guys going to eventually get to the point where you're uh, putting out like, I don't know, producing like video content or is it, <clears throat> is it mostly just going to be so articles? I, and... I mean, I do a little bit of photography, but probably more so it would be we would do like we are with the tech side of it where we find content creators that need a voice okay. uh, and we try and get them uh, you know, to come, come aboard and we try and fund them to do it via us. Uh, that's the dream really is to get content creators that you know haven't had an opportunity to talk about xyz and get them into you know get them into an audience that is interested in that Mm -hmm. and then we can fund it i mean the amount of people that said to us like some of our writers now have said like their pitches they got turned down by so many websites they got offered to be paid purely in exposure or artists that have been paid on uh, oh well we can get you likes or you know and we basically said to our artists uh they were like uh Oh, so what do you want? What would you like? And I'm like, wherever you want, you know, we're giving them complete creative freedom. That is, that's, that's awesome. Cause yeah, I mean, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of writers out there, like I've, you know, being in the freelance space, like I've encountered that too. Like as much as I lo- like, I love video games and I love talking about like, you know, mental health stuff related to video games. And, but like, you try to pitch something like that and like, well, we would rather you talk about Marvel, you know? And as much as like, I love Marvel films, I'm just so tired of talking about it. So, you know, it's when I hear what you guys are doing that, I think that's really great that you're like allowing these creators and writers to have their own voice in a space where people are so picky about like what they want to publish. We considered, um, we considered doing a, uh, a website, et cetera, but like it immediately went away because there's no, we don't want to do adverts and we don't want to do SEO and we don't want to have to do clickbait. We really just want to make a product that can tell people a good story. So the the most feasible option for us was to do a tangible product that we can incorporate all of it into one place. So, I mean, some people do like, for example, a Patreon and you get posts, et cetera, but like we feel the best method really was to create, bring all of this content into one format and that being lock on. And then it will change every volume. We will have unique content. It will, you know, it will focus on different games, different aspects of the industry. We will allow people to tell their stories. It can be a happy story, a sad story, a personal story. It can be something that, like I said, a publisher or an SEO-based website wouldn't want to touch uh, because they want to hear about Marvel. They want to hear about Call of Duty. They want to hear about you know stuff like that. And uh, that's the part of the industry that I literally have no interest in. Is yeah, that aspect right. of it to be because honest? There are so, so many great. Oh, so, sorry. There are so many great stories out there that that need to be told, and that people might not even know that that's something they're interested in until they come across it. Uh, sorry, Jason, I, I, I interrupted you. What, what were you going to say? No, no, no. Um, so I came onto this project um, last July when I made acquaintances uh, with John, and you know we realized we we're like-minded people. So uh, before. 
I only got really involved in the gaming community online last year when, you know, the situation came about, as we all know, you know, the situation. You know, I've only ever talked about games, really, with my close friendship circles, you know, throughout my life. And I started wanting to get involved in conversations and find new friends on the internet. And obviously amongst all of this, I found, I, I felt like I found, you know, there's a lot of people that just argue about, you know, this console and that console frame rates, resolutions and, you know, visual fidelity. And what I felt was being lost was, you know, the conversation about video games, the love of games, uh, also exploring the deeper uh, stories of games and aspects of games, you know, um, you know, talking about, you know, the psychological consequences of certain games and, you know, how certain games can, you know, their issues and stories inform real world scenarios. And also talking about, you know, things like mental health as well. And um, so with Lock-On, you know, we've, we've been discussing this for a long time. You know, we started out looking at this as a, you know, a magazine with like a hardcover option, but then, you know, and it was going to have reviews in. And we felt like, well, this is going to be something that's going to release, you know, possibly a few times a year. And we want this to be like a product where we're going to have really rich content where, you know, it's a platform for people to tell very personal uh, stories, you know, about their favourite video games, a platform for, you know, aspiring writers, indie writers, artists to express their creative freedom where, they may not get that opportunity elsewhere, but also for them, stories to be immortalised. So, you know, we're going to have unique content. Um, we're going to feature, you know, a lot of games and systems um, where we look at the very deep and thought-provoking issues. And uh, that, that's what Lock-On, in a sense, is also about. It's also about community because 80% of our content is going to be from those indie writers and artists. And, you know, we want to make that very clear as well. Yeah, we're going to have uh, some really, you know, well-known influencers um, do uh, contributions uh, towards our uh, products uh, with Lock-On. But uh, that, that's kind of the direction we're going in as well. So, you know, we really want... It's a passion project. It's from gamers, for gamers, to inspire and create conversation, you know, about your favourite games and aspects of the game industry. Uh, but also, you know, we hope that the content that our readers will find in our books, you know, they'll be able to relate to, you know, it'll remind them of, you know, games or conversations they'd have with friends, you know, in pastime. Uh, you know, we want it to be a very um, healthy and, you know, nurturing ground for talent and content. You know, for example, um, an individual who's done some artwork for our fun covers, through that, he's now been given a great opportunity at a studio to work as a concept artist. So we're hoping that people can get discovered through us as well. John, can you further elaborate on that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've waffled on you, too much. No, it's fine. If we can give if we can give people exposure, I mean, that, that, that's the best thing that can come out of this. I mean, you have to start somewhere. I mean, if you give people an outlet to make something they love, that's the best way of them showing themselves and showing the best of their ability, really. Like I said, if you force someone to talk about something they're not really interested in, you're never going to get the best out of them. So mm -hmm. video games are important because they they tell such incredible stories and they're so personal to everyone. And we just want to be the place where you know, that can all come together and that people can you know build the foundations of what they want to talk about and just give people the freedom to do it, really. And I, I want every reader of Lock On to, to come away from it either educated 
happy, horrified, entertained, you know, all the different content. I mean, we go from, we go from, we have some really fun features in this first volume. And then we go all the way down to like eco-fascism and like environmental concerns of like environmental events around the similarities between Final Fantasy VII and modern day climate change. I mean, there's, there's everything's in there. I mean, you, we, and all these different personal stories. And I feel like that, you know, that's really important that, you know, we don't just stick to one ground. I mean, we take a few risks with some of the stuff. I mean, in terms of content wise, but that's yeah. the good thing about doing it the way we're doing it is that you can, you know, you can allow for these, you, what I mean is you can get smaller writers in to take more risks because, you know, of other stories we tell, you know, You're the, right. the, maybe the more fun stuff. Right. And you guys like aren't tied, you're, you know, you're not tied to any published like gaming publishers. So like you don't have that, those marketing shackles around your wrist. You can kind of just take chances um, and do what you want. We said in the beginning, we're not going to feature any game that's Mm non-preservable, like outright. So it doesn't matter any publisher that comes to me and says, will you, you know, talk about our mobile game? No, we won't. Not if that game is not preservable and in the future generations are unable to play it or it's inaccessible. So we won't talk about those type of games at all. So you know, stick it to our morals of that one. Yeah, and and, and I'll be honest. Like when the I, I got a Kickstarter email for uh, Lock On drop into my email box, and like I instantly got goosebumps reading about it because like this is like the holy grail of gaming journalism right here. It's not. It, it's your. There are so many voices that get lost in the midst of like Sony versus PlayStation. This game's good. Yep. That game's good. Like yeah, let's market yeah. to Ubisoft. Let's market EA. Like all these like corporate interests that you just you don't hear the more like humanizing aspects of gaming. And that's that's what we we felt the same, and that's what that's why we did this. You know, we're going to be uh, covering a lot of gaming history. You know, for example, in uh, the first volume of Lock On, uh, we're going to be doing a, a big retrospective on uh, the PS1 with contributions from, you know, John Linneman of Digital Foundry, uh, Ryan Mystic, uh, My Life in Gaming, and also Adam Korolik, who's going to be uh, looking well, writing about his unique perspective on the Nintendo PlayStation prototype. So, we're going to be covering some very obscure facets of, uh, you know, the PlayStation 1 history. You know, stories that probably just been lost in the fastness of the internet, you know, because we want this to be a really collectible item that, you know, you can feel proud to have on your shelf or in your book collection. And then it's like reference material that you can come back to time and time again. And then also, you know, having stories and features in there, which also raise awareness of other, you know, issues uh, related to gaming, you know, we want to touch on mental health, climate change. And also in the first volume, we'll be touching a lot on um, accessibility. Uh, So, you know, you may have seen an update where we're going to be having an interview with um, an individual called Sightless Combat. And he's uh, an activist uh, with accessibility, and they'll be talking about how he played through The Last of Us Part 2 blind, but making use of the uh, innovative accessibility features that they've incorporated into that game. So, you know, it's just about creating awareness and also, how do I put this? Uh, Yeah, a massive sense of community. So, yeah, and we've got a few stretch goals in there. So we were going to put a refuse into the book, uh, which I touched upon earlier. Uh, But if we did put refuse into the book, it would kind of, you know, age the product in a way because we want this to be timeless. 
So if we can hit some of those stretch goals, we may look at reviews in the future to go alongside the book as like a little pull-out magazine. Yeah. But we just got to see what happens, basically. And I, so you you had talked about community a lot. Like I, I don't know how you guys feel, but I, I feel like, you know, you go on these big websites like IGN, Polygon, Kotaku even, like the communities that they, they have giant communities, but they are so like toxic to each other. Like they... It's just it's full of people like making fun yeah. of of the articles or making fun of each other, and like with with lock on, I feel like you guys have the potential to really create a community that comes together over healthy interests and healthy ideas to have like really great conversation that doesn't end with somebody like making fun of somebody's mom or you know something even more yeah. drastic there. I mean that's the issue with internet anonymity, isn't it? you kind of create these toxic circles of people. And like, I, I can't imagine half the people that are toxic online even really care about what they're saying. I think to be honest, it comes down to just being aggressive for the sake of being aggressive. Okay. I feel like we want to cultivate an audience of people that, you know, is interested in the stories. And I, I feel like because of what we're doing, it'll be more tailored. Like you can avoid all that toxicity. You can <laughs> kind of come together with like-minded people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I, I got a, uh, I got a hot seat question for you guys here in a second, but, um, Go for it. <laughs> so, okay. With, with, I, I want, I'll get back to, I want to get back to the Kickstarter here in a second, but with, with lock on, are you, so you, you have this, this public, this publishing company you guys have made and you got lock ons coming out. How do, is there any like nervousness in this like era of, um, I guess 2021 cancel culture or whatever you want to call it? Like, is there any nervousness about like printing things? Cause I mean, this is, a lot of stuff gets like you'll see it get posted up on the internet and then the moment that someone says something on it it's removed and you'll never see it again like is there anything that like makes you guys nervous about creating something like this within this this climate oh really i mean it's my you know i own the company yeah i'm not i'm not that anyone's beck and cool yeah then that's so, good you know yeah nothing you know not I mean, it, the, the product's limited anyway to the degree that, you know, it once it's printed, you know, there'll be a limited production and then it'll be that volume will eventually be discontinued, et cetera. But, yeah. you know, so the words will always be in print. That's just how print is. I mean, there's a permanence to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Yeah. And, and th- you know. this is like, this is the kind of like, I don't know, this this type of publication or this this type of journal is like the, I think the something that the, the world needs. Like this is, it's important to have... Uh, voices like that i mean with a journal as well you know um i work at a university here in the uk and uh you know i'm around academics a lot and um i i'm a graphic designer like john so i i have to put together quite a few publications uh, for print sometimes which are a, a collective of academic journals so we have a lot of research going on and uh, a lot of these you know research topics some are quite controversial uh, but so with lock on, you know, we want to tackle hard issues, you know, current issues, current affairs. But at the, at the same time, you know, we're we're very careful and selective over who uh, we get on board. You know, in terms of a, a screening process, um, we're carefully curating um, who we're going to let write for us and, you know, uh, be included in this book because we, we just want 
uh, topics that are from the heart, basically, and will tackle those hard issues, but be carefully written and, you know, carefully considered or, yeah. you know, considerate. So we thought, yeah, let's settle with a journal because, you know, um, I don't think there really is any gaming journals out there, not that I'm aware of anyway, you know, so you know, we just want this to be an honest product that's going to resonate with anyone who's passionate about video games. You know, you touch upon people on the internet having arguments. And I'd like to think that, you know, many of them, you know, they're just fencing off, or that many of them are just, um, they are passionate about video games. But there is definitely an audience there. And I think once that audience makes itself known, you know, cause we've had some, we've had many positive uh, feedback comments this week. We're just hoping that, you know, we can build a really positive community and create a lot of conversation online, whereas where it's going to be, you know, a lot less negative. And if, for example, if we were going to do reviews of games, we also want those reviews to be very honest, where the, the games have been played and scrutinised, uh, you know, to the highest standard. So, yeah, we're all about being at a high standard, but at the same time, just creating a very positive community, you know, that just wants to talk about the, the great aspects of gaming, you know, the, the love of gaming, basically. I, God, I, I sound like I'm putting my heart on the sleeve here, but, that, <laughs> you know, from the way I'm talking at the moment, uh, I'm just very passionate about this project. It's something I've, I've always wanted to work on, you know, throughout my life, you, you know, uh, if I was going to go into games journalism, this would be something I'd want to work on, you know, because it's it, it's just being about positive, you know, positivity, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, and I, I think that's great because I mean that's something that you can even take like if you look at a lot of modern publications especially on the internet they take they can have the potential to take very positive things and twist them into you know very negative ideas and concepts and it creates a lot of controversy so it's nice to have something where like creativity is not hindered by the you know the voices that are all over the web at the end of the day you're never going to be able to please everyone you're always going to get negative comments from here and there or everywhere but um at the end of the day, I'm, I'm hoping it's more positive than negative. That's the that's the intention. We're not intending to be disruptive or upset anyone. It we just want to make a really great product that just basically immortalizes a, a lot of facets of gaming history and a lot of people's um, creative and perceptions of video games from different angles and their perspectives. So uh, yeah, we just got to see where it goes really. All right. Yeah, I mean, and I again, like I saw the email pop into my box, and I got really excited about what you guys have going on, and I'm I'm really excited to see like to get my hands on like a, a one of the hardback versions of the journal. Like it, that is awesome. Like I, I growing up, like I always collected like my Game Informer magazines, my Xbox magazine, yeah. PlayStation mags. I still have like boxes of them in my my closet in there. So that's a this is a really cool concept you guys got going on here. Thank you. You're listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos. Don't touch that dial. Wait, do, do people still use dials? Check out what's been going on with the Pop Culture Cosmos show and the PCC Multiverse. The better that these Marvel films do, the higher the standards are going to be for not just other films in general, but other Marvel films also. I think it's really hard to end a show with this many fans in a satisfying way. That's the Pop Culture Cosmos show. And the PCC Multiverse. Playing worldwide on radio seven days a week and wherever you get your podcasts. Do you guys want to take a minute to talk about the Kickstarter? Yeah, we can do. I mean, it's going uh, reasonably well. Obviously, uh, our biggest uh, challenge is, you know, engagement now. So 
as you'll be aware, most social media platforms absolutely throttle your engagement once they catch on to what you're doing. So our reach initially was really good. And obviously now it's been hampered significantly because we, you know, they want us to pay for adverts, et cetera. So it's case of now really just trying to grow organically and get people to know who we are. So, you know, stuff like this is absolutely incredibly helpful for that. Um, and, and, and anybody that likes the journal talking about it, telling a friend, you know, you know, posting it within their communities, et cetera. That's how we will grow our audience now because that initial surge we had is like I said, as soon as they conned on to that, they kind of stunted it. I mean, in the first day we had, I think it was like 600,000 interactions and, and, you know, now it's a couple of hundred it is what it is. We, we kind of expected it. We just didn't realize how quickly that would kick in. Yeah. Uh, and obviously they noticed the surge. And now every time we do a tweet, we get a pop-up saying you could reach 2000 more people if you spend 100 and you know, all this yeah, kind of thing. So pay for that. You know, yeah. And mo- most of that yeah, like, on, on Facebook, like if you use Facebook marketing, it's you're, you're going out to like a lot of it's fake profiles. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't even, they, the adverts aren't tailored. I was looking at the demographics on an advert we did and it was being sent to like completely the wrong people <laughs> and it's, <laughs> right. you know, you're paying for that. So yeah, to be honest, it really, we would also rather like build a community from within. So I know the first product is always the hardest, but then over time, our audience will know we're here. They'll be able to come together and they'll know what we're about. So it'll be, it should be easier. I mean, we're already planning, you know, future projects, etc. but we've just hit, I think it's 60% now. And that's been the first week. So we're relatively confident now that we're going to be funded yeah. and hopefully we'll be looking at stretch goals. Yeah. So, you, I mean, cause you guys are at 22, 23 more days left. 23 days, 23 days. Okay. Yeah. And if you guys so are plenty of time, if, if you guys are listening, I'm going to post the link to their Kickstarter in the uh, podcast description. So you can click on that and you can give to them. Uh, do you guys want to, what are, what are some of the goals? I mean, some of the uh, rewards that they can get for donating. Absolutely. So we, we start all the way from just a digital reward where you'll get a wallpaper. Uh, and then going up from there, we do a, a basic edition, which is just purely the soft covered journal. Uh, then we do it, what we call the standard edition, which is the soft covered journal. Uh, also comes with a couple of art cards and a poster. And that's all custom, unique, bespoke artwork for those. And we're really excited to reveal that as the campaign, for, you know, once we get into production to start showing people what we've been able to get together. And then you have the hardback. So you'd be looking at a hardback custom journal, which is limited edition, only available for the Kickstarter period. You'll also get a, a unique art card of that one. You'll get your name inside the book. You'll get access to a Discord server where you can actually talk to us about you know, what writers you'd be interested in us pitching, what games you'd want to hear about, what, uh, you know, what consoles you want us to talk about. We're going to be doing, we really want to involve the community. So that'll be part of that aspect as well. And you'll get a digital copy with that one as well. So you can keep your nice, pristine, hardback copy on your shelf and you can read your digital file on the on your phone whenever you feel like it <laughs> yeah that's always nice i wish like i i i, um, I buy comic books every once in a while and like i like being able to like read i would love to have like a digital a code in the back of the comic book that let me like yeah. read them on my phone and so i could just like pack them away into the box we kind of took that from a lot of records now when you buy the record they also come with a digital copy yeah. so we feel like because for us, m- most of the expenditure here is the content. Uh, the production is actually a lot lower than the content itself. So it's quite difficult for us unless we have, you know, mass volume of like a retail publisher, which is impossible, really. Yeah. It's really difficult to get that that cost lower. So our, the vast majority of our costs are content. 
uh, that'll be the artist. And we wanted to pay fairly. We we say in the Kickstarter, if we couldn't have done that, we just wouldn't bother. We you know we would just not do the project. We're not going to offer somebody you know a pittance for their work or offer to pay them an exposure. It's important that people get paid. Uh, you know, to talk about this and to pay, you know to create this artwork. So you know that's why uh, our digital tier is our introduction because we knew that some people wouldn't be able to pay for shipping, etc. So we wanted yeah. to create that option. And that's also why, you know, some of the later tiers we've been able to afford to give a digital copy with that away for free as well. Yeah. And uh, I like, I like what you had mentioned about your content creators, like getting, getting paid their value. Cause you have a lot of people just offering, you know, they, they don't realize like how valuable their input is because you have these publications that will, either pay them nothing, like you said, with exposure, or they'll pay them very little and end up hacking up most of the stuff that they write. So, yep. I mean, I, I really respect, you know, that your guys' point of view on, on content creation. I mean, for, for the future, we're hoping to, I mean, at the moment we're at 155 pages. We're hoping that if we can build this audience, we can, we can grow that slightly more, maybe get more people involved per volume. I mean, it really depends on how, you know, we're accepted within the community and how, you know, how many people get to know we're here. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm already planning volume two. We've already had some pretty good, you know, and amazing pictures, some artists that we've uh, spoke to. It's going to, you know, we're always looking to surpass ourselves and make each one uh, personally and incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, do you feel like you're going to have issues like... Um you know, as you set the bar, like outdoing the last issue, or do you think that it's, I'd like to, I mean, (laughs) I, I I don't want to obviously, because every, all the content is so unique that you can't really, you know, one person's incredible story isn't going to be better than the next person's. But in terms of the actual physical attributes of the journal, I would like to surpass definitely in terms of what we can deliver. So adding more pages, looking at different finishes, uh, looking at whatever uh, you know extras we can include and whatever content we can include uh, as i said to you before with this idea that when you buy it you get a the whole experience these are the ways we want to improve and by growing our audience that, that you know that is the stuff we'll be able to do yeah yeah definitely and like you this this uh, you guys kind of have like a a pub a publication for the people by the people and that's something yeah. you don't really <laughs> see a lot of in you know, modern publishing. Uh, how many issues a year are you guys planning on putting out? Is it like a bi-monthly or is it... Um... No, we would, we, would, we would like to ideally in it quarterly if we can. But if, uh, you know, if the focus demands we do three or two, then we do that. You know, we, we would rather do two or three thicker, you know, heavier involvement content than we would rush them out. If that makes sense. Yeah, we're not we're not we're not on a time scale here. So uh, if one year we release a couple, one year we release four, it really depends how the content comes into place. We're not going to rush anyone. The stories need to organically come to people. We're not. We know we don't want to just start forcing content. Mm-hmm. So as they come, basically, <laughs> Qual- quality over quantity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, 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 no I didn't mean to. If you ask <laughs> you're, you're good. No, no, go for it. Uh, so, yeah, so with each volume, you know, you're going to be getting a heavy product, which is printed on the highest quality uh, paper. And then and each article and feature or retrospective that we do, uh, there's always going to be an artist that will do like a complimentary artwork, bespoke artwork to go with that. So you're really getting a, a healthy mixture of, you know, readable content, but also art. So 
like you know like we've touched upon before the journal is like a hybrid of you know magazine articles artwork so it it's really going to be like something really uh, precious and valuable to you know collectors like yourself out there um so yeah it each volume is going to be like you know jam packed and something really special, and something that's always going to surpass the previous one. Uh, we hope anyway. So yeah, just got to see how it goes, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it sounds like you're also like putting out a product like with a you know PlayStation magazine or whatever it is. Like you read through that, and like that's it. it doesn't really have any other rereadable quality to it. But with this, is something that you, like you know, like you keep mentioning, you can keep going back to it, and it's something that you can enjoy over a longer period of time as opposed to just like a regular magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, for example, the, one of the stories I'm really looking forward to reading in this is the uh, Nintendo PlayStation prototype experience. I mean, for example, uh, I might have a friend who will come around the house and, and uh, I'll show them this book and uh, it'll be like, oh, did you ever see that stuff about the Nintendo PlayStation prototype? Oh no. Oh, have a look at this. You know, so we want those kind of really fascinating stories to be in there, but just ones that you can come back to time and time again as reference material or those that you want to share with uh, someone who's got, you know, even a passing interest in video games. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like if you're a gamer or even not a gamer, like there's a lot of stuff here that could, you know, be icebreakers or good conversations to have at the dinner table. Like that's... There, there's exactly. a yeah, and because a, a, a lot of people don't realize there's a lot more like facets of gaming outside of you know Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo. Yeah, there's so many stories, aren't there? You know, I've gone through forums over the years where I've you know found, uh, for example, a lot of stories uh, about lost uh, Resident Evil games or how a Resident Evil game was originally something else, but then became what you know as Today, you know, Devil May Cry, for example, was originally Resident Evil 4. Onimusha was originally a Resident Evil game set in feudal Japan. I mean, uh, one of our contributors, Alex A. Neal, he's releasing a book soon called, uh, what's it, Itchy Tasty, I think it is. Um, yeah. You know, looking back on the development of uh, Resident Evil games, you know, some of the, the stories of the development that took place that, you know, the general public or even many fans of Resident Evil probably won't be aware of. So we, we want to kind of get, get those kind of things in the book as well. Just, you know, the stuff that's really obscure and fascinating and discovery type, you know. So, yeah, it's always going to be stuff exciting to come to when it comes to lock on. Yeah, and we'll yeah. try and maintain that quality throughout its uh, lifespan. Yeah, a lot of niche niche history in there. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Before we, we close things up here, like I want to ask, what are you guys currently playing right now? Like, what's your what's your jam with video games at this current juncture in time? You go first, uh, Chris. Oh, I'll probably play what well. oh, God. I tell you, uh, at the moment, I do not get to play games as much as I used to, you know, with having commitments. So on the PS5, I'm trying to wade my way through Demon's Souls still. I'd start it again because um, I couldn't get past a certain boss fight. I play my Switch Lite a lot. So if I'm spending time with my partner, you know, I can play that with her. Or So I'm playing Grandia at the moment, which I never played as a child. And uh, I regret not playing it as a child, because it's a really great JRPG. And um, every weekend, I'll normally spend like three to four hours to myself just getting an old retro console out or one of my many mini consoles and just playing like a really old game from the childhood or something I've never played before. So um, 
I'm playing a Jet Brian radio on the Dreamcast. Oh my mobile. God, such Jet a Set great radio. game. Yeah, Jet, or Jet Set Radio as it's known in other parts of the world. Yeah. So that's me. What about you, John? <laughs> I've been trying to get all the stars in Mario 3D World, uh, which is great fun. Uh, <laughs> I skipped it on the Wii U, actually, so I'm, I'm glad to be going back to it. I actually recently played Little Nightmares 2. That's awesome. That is a cool game. I love Tarsia. I mean, this, 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 I love that kind of hidden lore aspect of games. It's probably why the Souls series is like my favorite series of games. Because like, I like to, after I played a game, to go on YouTube and be studying the lore for like the next six months. So yeah, Little Nightmares 2 was full of that. And that's a great, really great experience. So I, I played Little Nightmares 1. I've been like wanting to pick up Little Nightmares 2. I just, I'm, you know, I'm, I got a back catalog of games I'm trying to like get through because I know I don't, I'm one of those people like I don't like to, like I got a, uh, a buddy of mine who will just play everything. Like he'll play 10 minutes of something, 10 minutes of something else. Like I, once I'm like, Oh no, I can't. Yeah. That's because nah. I have story OCD. So once I'm like committed to a story, I have yeah, to finish it. Finish before it. I'm out. Yeah. So I just, I've never um, understood that, but Little Nightmares 2 is definitely something that I want to play. Did you guys pick up anything for Mario Day? Like, do they have any sales going on out where you guys are? Yeah, we had the digital sale. But to be honest, I, I, I've kind of been getting the Mario stuff as it came out. I bought the Mario 35th anniversary collection and I've been playing the 3D world. I bought the, uh, I bought the, I traded in my uh, Switch Lite and I bought the, the red uh, Mario edition Switch console. Oh, nice. So, I've been, uh, yeah, just been playing Mario. Mario's kind of like my escapism now. I never used to be really big on Nintendo. I was always Sega and PlayStation. Mm -hmm. And then over the last, like, you know, generation, I've fallen in love with the Switch. And I'm suddenly, as I've got older, I've suddenly latched on to, like, the simplicity of Mario games and stuff. And you can just switch off. So I like to play a serious game. Like, I'm dabbling in between, like I said, Little Nightmares 2 or Control on PS5. And then I'm jumping back into Mario just to chill out in between you know you can just leave your <laughs> your brain on the door can't you and just play that <laughs> i won't say that about mario 64 i remember playing that as a kid but i got that uh i started playing that last year when the um what was it through the all stars yeah. came out on the switch and i i didn't give up but i got absolutely every single star in that game and it there was a lot of stressful nights, I must say, you know, yeah, not going a, to bed all the time and just trying to <laughs> do all these jumps just to get those stars. Cause it, it's not an easy game in some no, respects, no, but the game still feels innovative and fresh today, in, you know, 2020, 21, yeah. you know, as it did back in 96, 97. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a very timeless game. Like, cause I, I got 3d all-stars as well. And I'm sitting here like showing it to my kids and like, I've got slight Joy-Con drift on my, on my oh, right no. Joy-Con. So I'm like trying to, I'm on that uh, level where you're trying to pick up Bomb Om and toss him. And uh, I just, <laughs> I can't do it. So every time I try to go by him, I'm sliding instead of picking him up. And like my kids are going, why can't you do that? I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joy-Con drift's a nightmare. I mean, that needs to be resolved. Yeah, because yeah, jo- the Joy-Cons are crazy expensive. Yeah, the DualSense has the same problem. It's they use they're using like really cheap and outdated parts in these devices. Considering how expensive they are, you, you, this really needs to be clamped down on. But all they're doing instead of clamping down on it, they're just uh, changing their terms and conditions so you can't mm-hmm. sue them. Yeah, I mean it'd be nicer if they actually just fixed the problem and made you know more durable parts. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so issue one of Lock On is it? When's that? When can we expect to be able to get a hold of that? 
we're hoping to ship by July. We've got a good plan. I mean, we'd like to get out sooner, but we're setting a tentative, you know, in case of Brexit situations or something we're not anticipating happening. Yeah. But most of our content creators are already underway. So it really is just assembly and production for us once we get funded. And like I said, we're already pre-production in volume two, you know, based on if uh, volume one gets sufficiently funded. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, like, it's a very beautiful product and I really, I, I love what you guys are doing. And I've, I've, this is something that I feel like a lot of people will end up getting behind. And I, I, I see a lot of growth for uh, something like this. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, a kind of the enthusiast book market is a growing market. So hopefully more and more people find out about us. Yeah. All right. Do you guys have anything like any other, anything else you want to push before we, we sign off here? As I said, keep an eye on our website, www.lostincult.co.uk. And that will be where we announce new products, etc., And on our social channels, which you can find us on Lost in Cult on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Okay. And I will have all those links in the podcast description. So you can just click on those or copy and paste them into your, your search bars. Jason, it's been fun, man. Thank you for uh, joining us. John. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I honestly like it. This has been a blast. I'd love to talk to you guys again sometime. If you ever feel like jumping back on the, on the show here. Oh, yeah. Be yeah, awesome. no worries. Yeah. It was a pleasure. <laughs> I appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. <laughs>